0: And welcome to a special edition of the CODcast. If you're new here, I'm Jennifer Smith of the newly launched Commonwealth Beacon, formerly Commonwealth Magazine. And I'm joined by Danielle Allen, a Harvard professor of political philosophy, ethics and public policy. She is also president and founder of Partners in Democracy, focused on what she calls the work of democratic renovation. It's a really great week to be talking about this here on the podcast because we're in the middle of a week discussing what makes good governance and what makes for a good democratic, small d, state. We're spending this launch week doing the normal work of nonprofit statewide civic reporting, but with a special focus on how Massachusetts pitches itself and how that lines up with the way that we experience it as residents and interacting with our state government. So Danielle, thank you so much for being here with me on Commonwealth and Launch Day. Thank you, Jennifer. It's a treat to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Well, I tend to like to start broad, which is a real danger when you're dealing with the question of does democracy work? Yeah. So it's maybe one of the broadest yeah. questions we could go with. So let's start with the diagnosis instead. The warning signs
1: when democracy is kind of on the fritz here. What mm-hmm. does that look like? Sure. Thank you. I mean, I think we have to just start by registering what a hard time this is not just at home in our own country, but in the whole world. So I think everybody's feeling a very significant degree of stress. And I think that's actually not unrelated. I mean, I think we do feel stressed when our own democracy isn't functioning in a stable way in the world. We all just watch the kind of crazy shenanigans around the speaker in the House. Um, That's a good example of non-functional governance. These challenges aren't new. For me, the red alert came all the way back uh, in 2013, a decade ago, when Congress actually had an approval rating of 9%. For me, that was my red alert, because Congress is the first branch of government. It is the voice of the people. If we, the people, approve of our own voice at a rate of 9%, something is fundamentally broken.
0: What does that look like for the average person experiencing it? Plenty of people kind of mostly interact with their governance structures when they go into the voting booth, for instance. So what does it feel like, aside from just being depressed when you look at the news, for people when democracy isn't functioning in a way that's healthy?
1: You know, it's interesting. I was at a community meeting a couple of weeks ago where I heard a gentleman say, the worst thing is just the not knowing. The worst thing is, you know, suddenly something happens in your town and you didn't even know anybody was thinking about it. It's actually something that affects you. You had no idea this was coming, you had no chance to have any input in it and the like. And again, he just kept repeating the worst thing is the not knowing. So I think it's that sense of disconnection, that experience of opacity, not being able to kind of connect the dots or see where there's an entrance point for oneself to make a contribution. Mm. What does that look like in reverse Uh, when we think about what it means to
0: participate in democracy or to look around and feel like things are working? Is your view of it that it should feel kind of like a smooth road where there aren't really kind of any bumps, there isn't really a disturbance, or is it something where people are reminded constantly that they kind of
1: need to participate, that they need to try and impact the systems? Well, that's a great question. and I think we do have a sort of ideal hope for a certain kind of smoothness in democracy, the idea that, you know, my will will just sort of smoothly translate into whatever desired outcome I most hope for. And of course, that's not how it is, because at the end of the day, we are a huge, complex, diverse society. There is always going to be, you know, contention, real contest of views and the like. So the question is really whether or not one feels that one's own voice or the voices of people who share views similar to oneself have been taken seriously in the public sphere. Whether you can see those views and voices actually impacting how results come out. A lot of people right now don't have that sense of connection. So I think that's really at the core of our our difficulty. Mm
0: And how does that interact with the question of partisanship and interact with the question of kind of ideological leaning? Because democracy, and one of the great things about it, is it is often about disagreements. So even the idea of what a functioning democracy could look like might differ depending on who you are. So could you tell me a little bit of where you would position yourself on the ideological spectrum and how that's influenced your view of what a functional democracy should look like?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, So there's many parts to that question. There is. That was a very (laughs) multifaceted question. We love those. So uh, let me break that out a little bit, actually, Um, because I think there are really two important things to say. I'm a big advocate of the idea that our job right now is to build a cross-ideological supermajority for constitutional democracy. And when I use that phrase, and I'm talking about a supermajority, I really mean you've got to get to a place where two-thirds of Americans or 70% of Americans all feel a kind of urgent sense of commitment to the ideals of constitutional democracy. And that means bringing into coalition movement progressives and folks sort of in center left and center right and what I like to call constitutionalists on the right and so forth. Um, and so I think one can really be committed to constitutional democracy without that actually then also sort of parsing out on our conventional partisan spectrum. And I think actually making space for that conversation right now is just hugely important. Um, by the same token, just for the sake of putting all my cards on the table, I am a registered Democrat. I am the chair of my local Democratic ward committee. I'm a big believer in civic associations, including parties as grassroots associations. And I really do think that the health of our democracy depends on people participating in that grassroots level. So, you know, you, you, you take your choice, you pay your next. You go for your ride with the place where you feel most committed. Um, And I think I really encourage everybody to do that. I think the more who do participate that way, actually the healthier our party system becomes. Well, let's dive
0: into the question why we're here today, which is, um, how's Massachusetts doing when it comes to those red signs, those red flags, those kind of little warning symbols? Uh,
1: Should we be worried? Well, you know, we have such a proud tradition in Massachusetts for stepping up for democracy. Obviously, in the very beginning, our incredible revolutionary tradition. Also, recently, we've seen the terrific work with the Votes Act, for example, in the legislature a couple years ago. So, there's a huge community of people inside the State House and outside the State House who are really doing good work for democracy. At the same time, yes, we can also see warning signs. I really like to stress that a healthy democracy depends on a couple of critical values. There's the value of inclusion, really achieving full inclusion, the value of engagement or participation, and then the value of competitiveness. And on each of those dimensions, we can see room for improvement in Massachusetts. So if you look at inclusion, for instance, um, and you look at the U.S. census data for voter registration, we actually have voter registration levels that are below the national average for all communities of color in the Commonwealth. So that's Asian Americans and Hispanic and Latinx Americans and also African Americans in the 2020 data in particular. So, you know, that's a real place where even though we have automatic voter registration, somehow we are not actually achieving full inclusion. Then you look at engagement. Here we're at a place where the number of people who are registered in a party is declining. Mm -hmm. You know, we're at a point where 61% of voters are not in a party. Um, I think that that's a problematic thing, because again, I do think connecting to those grassroots organizations is a part of learning how to exercise one's civic muscles. So I think that's really important. And so that question of how do we get people to re-engage, reconnect, uh, imagine their own really, you know, sort of day-to-day participation is important. Can we dive into that one a little bit sure. for just a second? Because you
0: also Please have skip this... the hardest one. Oh, then. that's Are why I'm coming back, back to, to, it? to it? it. All right. Okay. <laughs> so, so to kind of dig briefly into the question of unenrolled membership, independence, mm-hmm. Massachusetts does often talk about itself where that's kind of a good thing, where they say, yep. you know, there aren't things that mean you have to tether yourself to one party or the other. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about both how kind of accurate it is to refer to a large proportion of our our population as truly independent, and then why you don't see that as helpful.
1: Sure. So I want to be clear that I think, you know, some folks choose to be independent, and that's a great thing, and they do that for specific reasons of commitment and principle and the like, and I totally respect that. By the same token, what really matters is the real shift that we're seeing. Um, and so it's not just Massachusetts. If you look at the whole country, we are seeing a real decline in party membership. So a decade or so ago, about 75 percent of Americans were members of parties. We're down to 50 you percent know, for the country as a whole. So the reason that matters is because at the end of the day, we really do have a sort of a need for grassroots participation that is connecting people at the municipal level, at the county level, making sure people get information about what's happening, right now, you know, if you sort of spend your time out and about in Massachusetts and try to f- figure out who knows what's actually happening in the state house or in city government, it is much more likely that somebody who is participating in one of our parties will have that knowledge than for everybody else. So, when people are not enrolled that's fine, but they're really missing out on a very important part of their own civic capacitation. So that's where the concern comes in. And I do think it really is important to make sure that that kind of grassroots participation is, is vibrant and meaningful to a broad swath of our population. All right. Now we get to the hard one. Go ahead. Sure. All right. So the, the third value being competitiveness. I mean, it's just a very straightforward thing. If you're going to have a healthy democracy with accountability and responsiveness, you have to have competitive elections. Now, this does not mean that every incumbent needs to have a competitor in every single election, but you need some sort of healthy dose of competition. And it it can be true at the same time that here in Massachusetts, we have incredible numbers of very dedicated, hardworking people working on our behalf. And it can be true that we all love our own individual reps. We all do. That just is the case. And at the same time, uh, we would be better off. We would have more accountability and responsiveness from our legislature if there was a higher degree of competition. We are the 50th state in the country and have been for about a decade in terms of the number of contested elections that we have. There are just really quite um, frequent concerns um, and worries around the Commonwealth from people in all walks of life about issues of accountability uh, for our elected officials. And that all comes back down to the frequency with which we have competitive elections. I assume you have some
0: idea of some solutions that could kind of come forward to address a few of these things. Let's kind of go in reverse order here. Competitive elections doesn't necessarily mean that just everybody gets challenged all the time for no reason. But what would that actually look like functionally? What kind of systems would introduce challenges? And what kind of incumbency does suggest a need for that kind of challenge on a more regular basis?
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So I think really what matters here are some of the structural things that keep people from throwing their hats in the ring. I think that's honestly the most important issue um, here. And to some extent, I think campaign finance is a real issue. Connecticut, a neighboring state, has a really terrific public campaign finance program um, that does pull people into competition and candidacy. And they have a sort of more uh, diverse set of candidates routinely running at all levels. And their public finance system really makes a big difference for that. So that's one thing you can look at. Um, I mean, there's also the basic question of candidate recruitment and education and preparation and how even or uneven uh, those opportunities are for people. I think we could be doing much better. All of the civic associations in the Commonwealth could be doing a much better job of doing that work of candidate development. And then we also have to be clear-eyed about the fact that we have in Massachusetts the most restrictive set of rules for candidate ballot access for our statewide offices, but also the number of signatures that we require people to get sort of all the way down the ballot. So, I mean, that's really an interesting thing when you look around and see that states around us and all over the country um, have, in fact, opened up the aperture for people's candidacies more broadly than here in Massachusetts. You don't have to go all the way to California, okay? Because like that's the other end of the spectrum. And there's very, very low bar for entry into running for office, and you have like, incredible numbers of candidates and all kinds of you know craziness unfolding. My native state, I can speak to that. that yeah, yeah <laughs> mine, mine too. So I can throw shade in California yeah. for sure. Um, but at any rate, there is a happy medium, um, and I do think that it, it would it would do us good to move toward it.
0: Well, getting to the the sort of partisan question there as well is Massachusetts has long had this reputation and earned one as a pretty deep blue state yeah. Traditionally, But it might sometimes be surprising to folks who are outside Massachusetts or even new arrivals to Massachusetts to say, well, I don't understand why there's so much opacity when there's also not really that much of a risk, for instance, that uh, other parties are going to elbow in in a significant way. There's a pretty strong supermajority of Democrats, though there is a spectrum of Democrats in the state legislature. We have a Democratic governor. So what impact is partisanship and kind of party allegiance have having on the competitiveness question here?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it is the case that we have a one-party um, state, right? I think that's, you know, everybody that, recognizes that and knows that. So that's certainly an element of it. But in that regard, I think for me what that means is that it's an incumbent on the party uh, which has such prominence and such strength, really historic strength. And, you know, I said I'm a registered Democrat, so I can say we can celebrate from that perspective that that historic strength, um, it's then incumbent on the party, I think, to go ahead and uh, make space for competitiveness even inside the primary process because that's what the public deserves. The public needs full debates, um, needs that chance to really have uh, choices so. And you've
0: also pushed for a number of election reforms. Uh, There have been ballot measures in the past. There are efforts at ballot measures now. There have been legislative measures to try and change up the way that we do elections on the state level and on the local level. They tend to hit a wall. Can you tell me what that wall is?
1: Sure. I mean, so I think there's some really important things we should do coming back to full inclusion. Same-day voter registration is really critical. Um, Folks have been working on that in Massachusetts for almost 20 years. You know, we have uh, 22 states in the country that have same-day voter registration. It's very clear that it would make a huge difference for people who rent. And we have an electorate that, in terms of participation, is really skewed to those who are owners of property. It's like very old-fashioned, right? In the very beginning of the country, voting was formally limited to people who held property. And we're kind of, in a de facto way, functioning that way again seems really important to open it up with same-day voter registration. I think, you know, these issues go to ballot because at the end of the day, it is challenging uh, for folks who have run for office under one set of rules to imagine doing so under another set of rules. Um, I'm a big believer in the idea that there's lots of ways to change up a game, you know, to, to retrain yourself, get ready for new conditions and so forth. Um, And I think those of us who seek these reforms would be happy to help incumbents think about, you know, what are the modes of of running in new ways and new conditions? Um, That kind of coaching should be a part of the whole package. Um, But I think that's just challenging. It's challenging for anybody to change up their game if they've been practicing it one way for a long time.
0: How should voters, uh, or or how can voters, I suppose, kind of square the affection that they often have for their own representatives with the fact that we see very often uh, some pretty serious disagreements or concerns about either the way that people are able to get into or participate in government or the particular policy measures that sort of enter a black box of lawmaking? Mm-hmm. So, so how should voters be thinking about a lawmaking system that doesn't seem to be, on the whole, trying to open itself out to more input?
1: Yeah. Well, I think one of the most interesting reforms kind of gets at that a little bit. Um, so I'm particularly interested in and excited by the new model in Alaska, hmm. um, where, in some sense, you could think of it as, like, what we do in our municipals, like Boston mayor's race, but a sort of little on steroids. Um, so... You know, in Boston, we have nonpartisan, preliminary, and then two finalists go forward to the final round. In Alaska, they have gotten rid of party primaries for their state and federal elections, and then they take four finalists forward to the final round. So everybody from different parties runs on the same preliminary ballot. In Alaska, they can run with their party label after their name, so that's a little different from our municipals. But anyway, but then they take four forward They then use an instant runoff in that second round um, so that whoever wins has to get a majority vote to win. Um, But the thing that's really interesting about that, I think, is that it does mean you can get a lot of different voices, you know, in the same conversation together. And sometimes, you know, I think, you know, we want to hear our incumbent's voice. You know, people we are connected to our incumbent, we want to hear that voice want to have the chance to hear that voice alongside other voices as well Um, and so the nice thing about opening up the aperture that way is I think it both does mean that there's you know really solid space for incumbents to run but it does actually also give you a chance to just really consider the whole picture Um, so it's a good way of fostering um, competitiveness I think and Alaska certainly is seeing that. You've written before about the different types of sort of movement building
0: and the different kinds of movement groups across political spectrums, uh, on the left wing, on the right wing, uh, something that the libertarians are up to as well in terms of decentralizing, and then your own kind of preferred sort of fifth alternative. So walk me through a little bit what the dynamics are that you're seeing in Massachusetts in terms of these different types of movement building and their effectiveness at actually achieving their desired outcomes.
1: So that's a super interesting question. And I think if I am, am, am tracking you right, you're referring to some pieces of writing I've done that are broadly about the whole array of substantive policies so exactly. not just democracy exactly. questions. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think that we are just in an, a point of incredible transition in our country um, and on so many different dimensions. I mean, just with regard to our population, you know, we're huge. We are incredibly diverse. Um, our economy is incredibly complex. Technology is further complexifying things and changing how we all do business you know in our daily lives in innumerable ways. And in conditions like that, it's really important uh, that there be practices, Um, organizing contexts that bring ordinary people into the conversation about how we want to sort of steer the direction of this amazingly complicated, rapidly changing society that we are a part of. And so I think, you know, progressives and honestly, folks on the right as well, have done an amazing job of connecting with people who have felt really disconnected um, from the whole process. Um, at the same time, as they've done that, they haven't, you know, always, it sort of varies in, in different contexts, um, but put, I think, enough of a premium on solutions that that work, um, and that work in ways that break through sort of stakeholder conflicts and impasses. So I think actually, for example, the governor's new housing policy is a beautiful example of a set of really practical policies that do break through some of those stakeholder impasses. Um, and I think it's really sort of wedding that kind of policy vision to the capacity to engage people at a grassroots level, that's the kind of combo that I think we need.
0: Mm. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up. So we're talking, of course, about the new housing bond bill that's coming forward. Mm-hmm. The administration's kind of uh, laser focus on housing as sort of you know a crisis yep. and critical issue. We're all very familiar right now with the strains on the shelter system. Yep. One of the issues and the discussion and the things that people are interested in watching with the housing bond bill is, you know, what is the chance, for instance, that some of these ve- very historically controversial policies, uh, like a transfer tax, for instance, mm-hmm. actually managed to get it through. Mm-hmm. So you ran for governor, uh, you uh, have talked at length about kind of how leadership itself does matter. What's your sense right now of Massachusetts's kind of leadership driven Ability to push things that have been more controversial through now?
1: Yeah. I think we're in a really good place for that. Um, I think our governor is doing a great job, and I do think that she is building relationships both inside the State House and also more broadly in the Commonwealth that change the dynamics of the conversation. Um, that make clearer what the sort of a- array of stakeholder positions are, um, that make sure that sort of voices of members of communities all over the state are able to contribute to the conversation, um, and that also, you know, are where the conversation is lifting up legislators who have really strong and powerful vision for how we can do better in the Commonwealth. So I do think that the general dynamics of decision-making are shifting in a positive direction, so I'm quite optimistic for the outcome of this effort.
0: Mm-hmm. And thinking about what Massachusetts's place is in the broader national system, we've talked about some trends and some policy choices that have been made across different gubernatorial and presidential administrations. What can a governor of Massachusetts do? What can a city, a, a mayor of a city do to kind of do the sort of democratic renovation that you push for? Uh, can we be untethered from the national conversation in a useful way?
1: I think we can. I really appreciate your putting that question on the table, because I do think Massachusetts has the opportunity to set a standard for the rest of the country and really show the way. Um, You know, we are a place that appreciates innovation. Here we live with also these great universities in our midst, and all kinds of good ideas are coming out of them right now. Um, There actually are real opportunities with new technologies even to help strengthen participation, to change our approach to how public opinion enters into decision-making processes. We've all gotten used to sort of polls that are really kind of crude and rough and almost sort of pre-digest opinion by giving you very kind of blunt choices and they themselves are sort of polarizing in how they formulate things. This is no longer necessary. I mean, there are great examples of alternative methods at work in Taiwan now, for instance, um, where people can participate in processes that allow them to actually just fully express their view in a statement form. Permits surfacing of points of common ground that weren't visible previously. I would love to see, you know, our our mayors, cities around the Commonwealth, our governor um, thinking about places where such new opportunities could be integrated into our decision making processes. I think that would improve representation. Help that sense of connection um, for regular people. And also, you know, that address that issue of feeling. I mentioned the gentleman who said, like, the thing is just the not knowing, not knowing something's being discussed, not having a chance to put your voice into the mix, and so forth. I think there's a lot we can do to respond to that.
0: And you're in a little bit of an interesting position right now as well, because not only do you have your partners in democracy work, not only do you have your educational and academic work, but you've also been appointed to the board of the Massachusetts Department Mm -hmm. of Higher Education. So now you sort of have a foot in a few of these worlds. Firstly, kind of how do you see your role as part of that board? But then also, how has it impacted your thinking about what can be done from inside and outside governance?
1: Sure. So let me start with that second question, because sure. I think that's a that's a very Massachusetts question. Right. right? Is it an inside game or an outside game or right. what's the plan of inside game? Can get very siloed. Exactly, that's right. Um, I mean th- that one's got a simple answer, which is just that I I bear my role and responsibility as a citizen very seriously. I carry that with me consistently in every lane in life that I inhabit. And so for me, I don't actually really see things in that sort of inside-outside way. I have a kind of Public good orientation, and do my best um, with the avenues available to me to contribute as parts of teams to advancing that that public good, that common good. So, and it's an honor and a privilege to have a chance to do that on the board of higher ed as well. It's a critical moment for public higher education in the nation broadly. Um, you know, we desperately need to reinvest in our public higher education system. We have the great result of the fair share amendment that permits that in Massachusetts. So it's a really important moment of opportunity um, to ensure that full access um, is a a genuine and authentic thing um, in Massachusetts.
0: The fair share amendment is a wonderful way to kind of get into the last sort of I guess, messy tangle that I was hoping to get into with you, which is this question of competitiveness, not Mm -hmm. in terms of how many people can run for something, but the idea of what makes a state competitive. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's deal with sort of the economic questions first, which is how have you been thinking about the tensions between, say, a higher tax policy and efforts to change that both, you know, having voters pass the fair share amendment, but then also efforts and changes and tweaks happening at the state level to increase additional kind of tax cuts or change some loopholes to the way that we've been doing the fair share amendment to, for instance, not allow couples to register uh, or to file differently at the federal or state level. How have the economic competitiveness questions been striking you lately?
1: Sure, I appreciate that. Um, well, for starters, you know, on the tax code, it's a regrettable thing that any tax code can always be improved, right? That's just sort of the nature of a tax code. So there's always work to do there. And um, you know, yes, I think people are pushing and pulling and trying to get to that place that's just right for Massachusetts. But um, I think for me, what's really important is that the conversation about economic competitiveness is never just about taxes. It is also all about what you know. I always Abraham Lincoln always used to call internal improvements. Okay. <laughs> You've got to have the infrastructure in place for a flourishing economy to support innovation, Um, and that really consists of housing and transportation. Housing and transportation. You've got to have a housing market that's generating enough opportunity for people to be able to live near jobs, for people to have businesses where they can employ people or housing is accessible to them. And you've got to have a transportation network that's also facilitating those movements. And those two problems are tightly interlocked with each other. So at the end of the day, I mean, we all know the challenges we have with transportation in Massachusetts. And I think um, for folks who are concerned about competitiveness. um, This is a place where we actually, you know, the right answer to competitiveness is public sector investment in those critical pieces of infrastructure. Mm.
0: You've also talked before about how complicated the conversation is around immigration policy. Uh, I mentioned earlier in this conversation the shelter system right now. We're recording this, and we're live on a Wednesday. So right now I don't know if a judge has said, for instance, that the Healy administration's cap or system to change the way that people are able to access shelter is or is not allowed. But you've talked about, you know, the fact that there are some legitimate qualms to be had with the way that we do immigration and immigration processing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could elaborate on that in the context of Massachusetts's current crisis.
1: Well, we are facing a really tough crisis, and it's terrible for families. It's incredibly straining for communities that have been working so hard to take families in. And I really think it's important to lift up the fact that communities across Massachusetts have really stepped up. I mean, it's kind of quite amazing what people have done and networks of faith communities and things like that to provide welcome. Um, So it's a hard, hard moment um, you know, there's no question the whole federal structure is causing us strain and difficulty. We do need a refresh of our immigration policy. It does probably need to be tiered in the sense of things like sort of work permits and things like that um, being used in different ways and is currently the case. Um, so all of that um, is sort of the broad surround. And, you know, in that kind of context, there's never any really kind of great solution to the near-term crisis. So I appreciate the fact that the Healey administration has been expressing compassion um, in its work. It's been clear and trying to be clear about expectations. I hope that the um, State House will step up and also um, be ready to exhibit compassion in this instance.
0: And the last question, is, is there such a thing as being competitive because of our democratic systems? Is there a way that Massachusetts could improve itself, work on itself in a way where that could actually be part of the competitiveness conversation? Are there states that can make that case, that they have very open, uh, Florida has great open meeting laws, for instance, that sort of thing?
1: Got it. Um, You know, for sure. Absolutely. I do think, um, and I think, you know, if if you checked in with the business community, I think you would find... Uh, that issues of accountability and responsiveness do matter uh, for competitiveness, for sure. Um, you want to know that you're in a state where there, if there is an urgent problem, um, that, you know it will be addressed um, in, a, in a rapid way, um, and that there will be kind of flexibility and a certain kind of pragmatic problem-solving approach that comes to it. Those are definitely um, valuable elements of competitiveness.
0: This is very sadly for me all the time that we have for this episode – Thank you so much to you, Danielle Allen, for being here. Thanks to our producer, hidden off screen, John Gee, for keeping us on schedule and sounding like people. And uh, I have to do some bookkeeping now, so everyone, bear with me. You might be hearing this on your podcast feeds like normal, which is great. You might have watched me kind of wave my hands around for half an hour, which is also great because that means that you made it to the Commonwealth Beacon YouTube live stream. And this episode is live streamed in public for everybody because this is launch week, as we mentioned. And if you like it, you could consider becoming a Commonwealth Beacon member, by the way, we're always going to be free, we're a nonprofit, but if you make a donation, there's some bonus stuff in there aside from the warm fuzzy feeling that you get contributing to local news outlets and news ecosystems. We've got insider newsletters, first dibs on tickets for events, but also access to future live streamed episodes on top of the episode that'll make it to your ears with everybody else later. Uh, by the way, good news, if you've already made a donation above $10 a month, hey, hi, you get access anyway. <laughs> good job. No more work for you. And to learn more, visit commonwealthbeacon.org membership. So thank you again to everyone who tuned in. Thank you again so much to Danielle Allen. We're really excited about everything coming next to Commonwealth Beacon. And we'll be back in your ears with a special polling episode this Sunday on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer.